Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every episode of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor and Romana as they take a trip to modern day Paris, the city of debt. As usual, we will be discussing the Doctor and the companions and the villains and give you our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on the story, so as always, to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, as per use, even if it's mm. intermittent use, apologies, real life kids get in the way, uh, mm. Paddy, would you please take us through the story summary? I will indeed. Thank you. And while and you're I doing that, I'm going to go get an ice cream. <laughs> I'm very jealous of you. What type of ice cream do you have? It's like uh, cookie ice cream sandwiches. Oh, God damn you. <laughs> I was like, okay. oh, I'll just you, keep you... my camera on, just stuffing my face while you're having yeah, I think I'll just, I think I'll just stretch this other window open so that I can <laughs> block that out. Look at my own gorgeous face for a while. <laughs> Part 1. On the cracked surface of a desolate windswept planet, the pilot of a shuttle pod frankly goes through their lift-off procedures. The pilot, Scarath, who is a cyclopean alien with a body made out of tendrils, talks over the communicator with another of his species who demands that he hurry up with the procedures. Scarath says the recommended procedures are too dangerous, but the other says that the entire fate of their species, the Jagarot, rests with him. The shuttle pod takes off, but then seems to fold in on itself before it explodes, with the other voice repeatedly telling Scarrot that he is their only hope. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Roman are taking the sights of Paris from the view of the Eiffel Tower in 1979, before deciding to go to lunch. Elsewhere, in the basement laboratory of a house, Professor Kerensky confronts his employer, Count Scarleone, about the funds required for his work to proceed. Scarleone assures him that money is no problem and gives him the money needed to continue. Another man, Herman, enters and Scarleone takes him aside, away from Korinsky. He tells Herman that they need to sell off one of the rare Gutenberg Bibles as their other collectibles have failed to bring in the required revenue for Korinsky's work. Herman advises Scarleone to be careful as the sale of such artifacts could bring unwanted attention to them, but the Count tells him to be as discreet as possible. Herman then leaves and Scarleone tells Korinsky to continue his work. At that moment, the Doctor and Romana are finishing their lunch in a cafe when the Doctor notices an artist sketching Romana. He tells her not to move, lest she ruin a potential masterpiece, but a curious Romana turns around and the furious artist crumples the page he was drawing on and storms off. Romana goes to pick it up, but as she does so, the air around him seems to vibrate, and the artist suddenly appears from thin air, sitting in his chair and sketching Romana again. The scene plays out again, and the artist storms off as Romana turns to look around. The world vibrates again, but this time the two Time Lords sense the irregularity, and Romana asks what's going on. A confused doctor says that he doesn't know, and she goes to retrieve the sketch. She opens it to reveal that where her face should be, the artist instead drew a clock with a fractured face. The doctor quips that it must be a crack in time, and then realises that what just happened was a time slip. Back in the lab, Scarleone congratulates Korinsky on the success of the test, and demands that he continue, saying that he wants another test later. Choosing to ignore the time slip, the doctor takes Romana to the Louvre Museum to continue their sightseeing. He shows her the Mona Lisa, but is annoyed when she is less than impressed than he hoped she'd be. Romana asks why the painting has no eyebrows, and the doctor goes to take a closer look, saying that he never noticed it before. A tour guide appears and asks him to move so that the, the group she is leading can enjoy the painting, but there is another time slip just as Romana asks what's going on. 
The scene replays itself again, and once again the Doctor and Romana notice the time slip, and the Doctor collapses from the strain, colliding with a well-dressed woman as he falls to the floor. A man tells the assembled crowd to stand back and he goes to help the Doctor up. The Doctor says that he banged his head on his gun, but Romana takes him away as he starts to babble about the time slip. The man follows after them, but a few moments later, the well-dressed woman indicates to another man to follow after them. Back in the lab, Scarlioni congratulates Korinsky again, but once again demands for the work to be progressed, asking Korinsky to increase the span of the time slip. Korinsky says that he is exhausted, and Scarlioni tells Herman to fetch food to the lab for Korinsky to have whilst he works. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Romana continue the third tour of the city, followed by the man who helped the Doctor. Unbeknownst to him, they are aware of his pursuit. Romana asks why he's after them, and the doctor tells her to look in her pocket. She pulls out an ornate bracelet, and the doctor says that he discreetly took it from the woman when he collided with her. Romana recognises it as a scanning device, and the doctor says that she must have been using it to scan the Lurus security systems for the Mona Lisa. Romana says that it is too advanced for Earth's technology, and the doctor agrees, saying that it is alien in origin. He then says that the man who was following them is now behind them with a gun in the doctor's back, and the man orders them into a nearby cafe. At Scarleone's house, the well-dressed woman, who is Scarleone's wife, recounts the events at the Louvre to the Count. She tells him that the man is actually a detective, but he is not a major concern. When she reveals the loss of the bracelet, Scarleone becomes angry, but she assures him that they will get it back. At that moment, the Countess's henchmen arrive at the cafe and hold the trio hostage and retrieve the bracelet at gunpoint. After they leave, the detective, whose name is Duggan, states his belief that the men are in the employ of the Doctor and Romana and they are trying to trick him by feigning ignorance. Duggan demands to know what Scarleone is up to, but when they again deny any knowledge of him, he goes to leave, seeing that they are crazy. However, he stops when the Doctor mentions stealing the Mona Lisa. Duggan reveals that Scarleone is suspected to have something to do with the recent appearance and sale of priceless works of art that have been lost for centuries and supposedly they are completely genuine. Back at Scarleone's house, the henchmen return the bracelet, but after they are dismissed, Scarleone orders Herman to have them killed. He then expresses his curiosity as to why the doctor is so interested in the bracelet, and he tells the countess to go tell Herman to bring the doctor to the house. She goes off to make the arrangements, and once she is done, she goes to the laboratory where Scarleone has gone to, but finds the door locked. Inside a private room in the lab, Scarleone pulls off his face, revealing it to be a mask covering a cyclopean, tendril-covered face similar to the alien from the shuttle pod. Part 2. The Countess waits in the parlour for Scarleone to return, and Herman arrives to tell her that the Doctor and the others have been captured. She tells him to bring them in, and a few moments later, the Doctor is flung into the room by Herman, leading him to compliment the Countess on Herman's violent nature. The Doctor makes himself comfortable whilst the others are brought in, and he fixes himself a drink, whilst the Countess asks why he stole the bracelet. The Doctor continues to give flippant responses, and Romana investigates a nearby puzzle box. The Countess tells her to put it down, but Romana solves it and takes the bracelet from inside it. Suddenly, Scarleone appears and congratulates Romana before taking the bracelet from her. He asks them why they stole it, but again the Doctor gives him nothing but flippant responses. Scarleone and the Countess agree that he is only acting stupid, and Scarleone orders Herman to lock him in the cellars. Duggan takes up a chair to fight off Herman, but the Doctor tells him to put it down and then asks Herman to lead him to the cellar. As they make their way down, the Doctor spots Karinsky's lab, but Herman ushers them into the cellar. Once they are alone, Duggan gives out to the Doctor about him blowing their chances to escape, but the Doctor produces his sonic screwdriver and says that he needed Scarleone to believe that they were in his power before doing anything. However, the screwdriver doesn't work, and Duggan takes it from him and bangs it against the door in frustration. The Doctor takes it back off him and finds that it is now working, but before he can use it, Romana draws his attention to the fact that the dimensions inside the room don't match up to what they saw outside. 
Doctor says that it is curious and says they will investigate it, but only after they look after the lab first. Once they are out of the cellar, Duggan again advocates for escape, saying that he will deal with the guards. However, the doctor says he needs to look at the lab as he believes it has something to do with the time slips. Duggan says that he needs to stop Scarlioni from stealing the Mona Lisa, but the doctor points out that the museum is still open and therefore safe from theft for the time being. The doctor offers to help him discover how they are going to steal it and why, but then comments that Duggan seems to be only looking for an excuse to vent his pent-up aggression. The doctor then notices Romana taking a box of chemicals back into the cellar, but Duggan says he doesn't care and makes his way towards the stairs. However, he is forced to take cover with the doctor when he hears someone approaching, and they observe his currency comes back into the lab. They watch as he uses the machinery on an egg, causing it to hatch and grow into a fully mature chicken in a matter of seconds. The doctor confronts Kerensky and compliments him on his work, but points out that it is flawed and warns him of the perils of tinkering with time. Kerensky retorts by saying that he is the foremost expert in temporal theory on Earth, and the doctor just saw the success of his experiments. He says that he intends to end world hunger with his work, but the doctor brings his attention to the chicken, who becomes a skeleton and collapses. The doctor again reiterates that Kerensky's notion of time manipulation is flawed, as he can only control it within a bubble. He then reverses the polarity on the machine and reverts the skeleton back into its original egg form. The doctor tells Kerensky that he should have asked more about Scarlioni's intentions, but he gets distracted when the egg changes to resemble the face of, like, Scarlioni's true identity. Duggan sneaks up and knocks out Kerensky, and the doctor gives out to him for his tuggish nature. Romana appears and says that she has discovered another room adjoining the cell that they were locked in. The doctor comments that it has been sealed up for centuries and says they should investigate it, much to the frustration of Duggan. Upstairs, Scarlioni gives Herman and the Countess a demonstration of how he attempts to steal the Mona Lisa from the lure via holographic representation of the museum emitted from the bracelet. The Countess compliments him on his intelligence, and Scarlioni says that they will carry out the theft that night. Down in the cellar, Romana wonders who would be willing to buy a stolen Mona Lisa, but Duggan says there are plenty of collectors who would gladly pay for it. They break into a hidden room, and inside they see a group of cupboards. The Doctor opens one of them, and they see the Mona Lisa inside it. The Doctor tells him that it is authentic before examining the other cupboards, all of which have a Mona Lisa in them, and all of which are supposedly authentic. He wonders why Scarlioni is going through all the effort to steal another one, and Duggan reminds him that he knows of at least seven collectors who would be willing to pay for it, but only if they knew that it was stolen. Suddenly Scarlioni appears and holds them at gunpoint. The Doctor asks how he got the paintings, but Scarlioni refuses to answer it and asks what happened to Kerensky. Duggan then throws his lamp at Scarlioni and knocks him out when he is distracted. The doctor again gives out to him, saying Duggan always knocks out people when he is questioning them. He then leads them upstairs, but as they are leaving, the Countess emerges from hiding and prepares to shoot them, but is knocked out by Duggan. The doctor tells him and Roman to get to the Louvre to prevent the theft whilst he goes to speak with someone about the painting. He sneaks into an art gallery where he parked the TARDIS and uses it to go and visit Leonardo da Vinci in Renaissance Italy. He calls out to the artist, but gets no response. As he looks around the artist's studio, he is apprehended by a guard who says that Leonardo is currently doing important work for his superior, Captain Tancredi. Suddenly the captain appears, and the doctor is amazed to see that he looks exactly like Scarlioni. Tancredi then asks the doctor what he is doing, addressing him as the doctor. Part 3. Back in Paris, Romana and Duggan break into the lure to discover that they are too late and that the Mona Lisa has already been stolen. However, the security system is still active, and Duggan accidentally trips it when he searches to see how the painting was stolen. Romana says they need to get out and Duggan dives through a window in order to create an escape route and says they should split up and meet back at the cafe. Meanwhile, back at Scarlioni's house, Kerensky wakes up and staggers towards the stairs but sees the cellar door open. He takes a look inside and sees the hole in the wall and goes to investigate. 
Inside, he sees the Mona Lisa's and Scarlione on the floor, and he goes to examine the unconscious count. Scarlione then starts mumbling, asking how the doctor could be in Paris in 1979 and in Florence in 1505. The question is simultaneously asked by his Tancredi persona, and the doctor says that he fits about through time. He then asks Tancredi what he is doing in the past, and Tancredi says that he will tell him before he kills him. He reveals that he is Scaroth, the sole surviving member of the Jagorot race, and the doctor says that they were destroyed over 400 million years ago. Tancredi says that he and a few others managed to escape the genocide, and they landed on prehistoric Earth, but their ship blew up when they attempted to leave again. He reveals that the explosion fractured his corporeal form and sent splinters of him into different time zones and Earth's past and future, all of which exist simultaneously. He then asks about the TARDIS, but the Doctor dodges the question by talking about a nearby freshly painted Mona Lisa. He says that the original painting was done two years ago, and guesses that Tancredi has commissioned Da Vinci to do copies of it so that he can bury them for his Scarlione persona to find in the future. Tancredi congratulates him on his intelligence, but says that he will need to be tougher with his questioning. He tells the guard to keep an eye on the doctor whilst he goes to retrieve torture equipment. The doctor tries to distract the guard by asking him if he believes Tancredi's story, but the guard says that he is paid to fight. The doctor then takes a Polaroid picture of him and shows it to the confused guard before knocking him out. He then rushes to a stack of blank canvases and writes, This is a fake, on them. He then writes a coded message for Da Vinci, instructing him to paint the copies onto the sabotage canvases. He finishes just as Tancredi returns, with a pair of thumb screws for the interrogation. He has the guard applied the thumb screws, but the doctor objects to his cold hands and agrees to answer Tancredi's questions. He reveals that he is a Time Lord, but then asks how Tancredi is able to communicate with his other selves. Back in Paris, Scarlione wakes up, and Kerensky asks him about the Jagorot and what he was saying in his semi-conscious state. He asks if the Jagorot are the ones that need all the food, and Scarlione mocks him for his naivete. Suddenly he hears a voice addressing him as Scarot, which causes him to enter a state of confusion. He quickly recovers and reiterates to Kerensky that he serves the Jagorot now and takes him back into the lab. He then shows Kerensky the designs of a machine that he wants him to build, but Kerensky says that the principle that the machine works on is the exact opposite of the experiments that he has been conducting. Scarlione points out that the core principle works the same in either way, but a horrified Kerensky refuses to obey him. He also points out that Scarlione would not be able to afford the machinery, but just then Harmon arrives with the newly stolen Mona Lisa. Meanwhile, Romana and Duggan reunite at the cafe, and Romana admonishes him for his ham-fisted methodology, but he brushes off her statements and asks how Scarlione knew about the copies of the Mona Lisa. Back at Scarlione's home, Scarlione is examining his face in a mirror when the Countess arrives and gloats in the success of the theft. Scarlione says that it is nothing to be proud of in comparison to being the person to have conducted the building of the pyramids or invented the wheel, just a few of the things his splintered self did throughout mankind's evolution. The Countess expresses confusion at his statement, but Scarlione tells her that to go when he starts hearing the voice addressing him as Scarot. The voice is also heard by his Tancredi persona, and he begins his interrogation of the Doctor. The Doctor uses the guard's confusion for Tancredi's delirious state to get out of the thumbscrews and flee into the TARDIS. The guard goes to tell Tancredi, but he's ordered away as Tancredi and his other selves splintered through time all hear the same address. The address is actually coming from Scarot's core essence, who urges his splintered selves to hurry up with their missions so they can finish their overall objective of resurrecting the Dragorot race. The Doctor observes this from within the TARDIS and then goes back to Paris, but his disappearance is observed by Tancredi, who projects it to Scarlione. Back at the cafe, Romana tries to cheer up a dejected Duggan by suggesting that they should try to retrieve the Mona Lisa. He asks how they will know which is the original one, and again wonders how the copies came to be. 
Romana suggests that Scarlioni found a way to travel back in time to request the copies to be made so that he can sell each of them to a different buyer. However, she says that Kerensky's work wouldn't make a suitable time machine. She tries to explain the principle behind it to Duggan, but when he can't grasp it, she's just going back to Scarlioni's house where he can at least beat someone up for answers. Meanwhile, the doctor returns to the Louvre and is told by the security guards about the theft. He then asks anyone if they have seen Romana or Duggan, but is told that no one has seen them, and he goes to the cafe, where he is told that they have gone to Scarlioni's home. He rushes after them to try and stop them from getting there. Unfortunately, they have already been captured and are being held at gunpoint by Herman in the drawing room. Scarlioni asks Romana to sit down and questions her about her knowledge of temporal engineering, revealing that he knows of her Time Lord status from Tancredi's conversation with the Doctor. Duggan tries to interrupt, but Scarlioni orders Herman to kill him if he continues to do so. He asks Romana to come downstairs, but when she initially refuses, he threatens to destroy the entire city, which causes her to agree. She and Duggan are brought downstairs, and she takes a look at Kerensky's machine, seeing that Scarlioni could unleash widespread devastation with it. Kerensky asks what they are talking about, and Scarlioni orders him to stand in the middle of the time field generator. Scarlioni then activates it, smiling as he watches Kerensky rapidly age and then become a skeleton in a matter of seconds. Part 4. Scarlioni turns off the field generator and tells Romana that he will unleash it upon the city unless she tells him how to stabilise it for his objective. Duggan says that he is inhuman, but Scarlioni tells him to be quiet. Romana says that Scarlioni is very presumptuous to think that she cares about saving the city, but she spoils her bluff when Scarlioni tells Herman to kill Duggan. Romana agrees to help, and Scarlioni has Herman lock Duggan up as an insurance policy. Once they are alone, Scarlioni tells Herman what happened to him 400 million years ago and that he wants to reunite with his other splintered selves to go back in time to prevent the ship from exploding. He says that he and his other selves have been guiding humanity's development in order to reach the level of technology needed to send him back in time. Romana agrees to build a stabilizer for him. Meanwhile, upstairs, the doctor is shown into the drawing room by a guard where he meets the countess. The doctor mentions that the quiet guard reminds him of Shakespeare and the countess shows the doctor a folder containing the first draft of Hamlet. The doctor says that he was the one who actually did the writing for Shakespeare as he had hurt his hand and complains that Shakespeare took none of his suggestions on board. The countess laughs at this, calling him mad. The doctor asks how Scarlioni managed to get the manuscript and she says that he is a renowned collector with many contacts for such artefacts. The doctor says that she is naive and just asks how well she knows Scarlioni. He tells her that she has been willfully ignorant of the strange things that he has been capable of doing and tries to reveal his true nature to her, but she continues to laugh at him. Herman arrives to bring the doctor down to the cellar, and after they leave, the countess, a bit shaken by the doctor's words, stops laughing and goes to a shelf of books and documents. She pulls out an ancient Egyptian scroll that depicts the ancient gods. She is shocked to see that one of them resembles Scarot, which the doctor had described to her as Scarlioni's true identity. Down in the cellar, the doctor asks what Romana is doing, saying that he will be very mad at her if she is making a time machine. Scarlioni reiterates his threat to destroy Paris, but the doctor refuses to be blackmailed by him, saying that he cannot allow him to meddle with time. Romana says that it will be fine as Scarlioni just wants to reunite his being and prevent himself from being scattered in time. Scarlioni notices that she has finished creating the stabilizer and says that he doesn't care what the consequences for humanity will be if he goes back in time. He tells Herman to lock them up and that he can kill them once he has carried out his objective. Scarlioni then goes upstairs where he is confronted by the Countess who holds a gun at him and demands to know what he is. Scarlioni casually goes to make himself a drink, which she demands that he answer her. He tells her that he is Scarot and pulls off his mask to reveal his true face. She recoils in horror and Scarlioni thanks her for wearing the bracelet again. 
He presses his ring, which causes an electric current to run through her body, killing her. Back in the cellar, Romana bemoans the fact that she fell for Scarlioni's story, and then wonders how he would get the power needed to operate the machine on the scale required to go back 400 million years. Duggan realises that he was going to sell the Mona Lisa's and use the funds to get the power. However, the doctor tells him of his sabotage, but Romana says that with the stabiliser he no longer needs the power requirement. She points out, though, that the stabiliser would only allow Scarlione to go back in time for two minutes before being brought back to the present. The doctor says that that has more than enough time for Scarlione to prevent the ship from exploding. The doctor says that that has more than enough time for Scarlione to prevent the ship from exploding, and they agree that to stop him as soon as possible. They get Duggan to break down the door, but they find Scarlione in his true form of Scarlet waiting for them. He says that he is about to go back in time and informs the Doctor that he has rigged the navigation readout to explode after he has gone in order to prevent the Doctor from following him. The Doctor says they need to go after him, but Romana says that without the coordinates they won't be able to find him. He, the Doctor says that the Jaggerot leave traces of themselves wherever they go and they'll be able to track Scarot if they can get to the TARDIS in time. They rush back to the art gallery where the Doctor left it, where it is being admired by a couple who are discussing its artistic merit. The couple watch in an even deeper admiration as they, when they see it disappear after the Doctor and the others go into it. They arrive back in prehistoric art and spot Scarlet's ship in the distance. They make their way towards it, and when they arrive, they see that its atmospheric thrusters are damaged. The Doctor and Romana realise that the ship exploded because it tried to take off using its warp drive. The Doctor tells a confused Duggan that the radiation from the exploded ship will affect the primordial ooze on the planet's surface and thus eventually give birth to humanity. Romana then sees Scarlet approaching the ship, and the Doctor tries to get him to stop. He says that history cannot be allowed to change and that the Jaggerot need to die in order for humanity to live. Scarlet ignores him and continues towards the ship but is knocked out by Duggan. They watch as Scarlet fades from sight and as he was returned to the future and the Doctor says they need to leave as well or they'll be caught in the explosion. Scarlet arrives back in the lab just as Herman enters it. He is appalled by Scarlet's appearance and before Scarlet can stop him he throws a gas canister into the machine breaking the time bubble and causing it to explode taking the lab with it. Later, at the Eiffel Tower, Duggan gives out to the Doctor and Romana that the only copy of the Mona Lisa to survive the explosion is one of the fakes. They tell him that everyone will be so happy to have it back that they won't even bother to properly authenticate it. Duggan asks them where they are really from, but they give him an evasive answer before wishing him goodbye and heading back to the TARDIS. End of the story. So now that we have watched our rise as a species be preserved, we're going to go to do the trivia behind the story. So Trish, what do you got for us this week? Cool. So the air date for the story is the 29th of September to the 20th of October in 1979. The writer is David Agnew, which is not a real person. Uh, it's a combination of Douglas Adams, Graham Williams and David Fisher. The director of the story is Michael Hayes. This is the final of three directing credits for Michael. We previously discussed his work in The Androids of Tara and The Armageddon Factor. This is the first time the series actually filmed overseas. So originally they were going to like recreate bits of Paris in a studio. But the unit manager, a man by the name of John Nathan Turner, pointed out it would probably be much cheaper just to actually just go to Paris rather than build all the shit in England. Um, Douglas Adams apparently wrote this script in the space of a weekend, knowing that to do so meant he could go to Paris and get drunk. That seemed to be a thing with Douglas Adams. This is the final story um, up until Arkham Infinity, 
um, to be significantly set in a country on Earth outside of the UK. Um, Ark of Infinity will be set in Amsterdam. Um, which when is Ark of Infinity by? Ark of Infinity is Peter Davison's second season, I want to hmm. say, or potentially his first. Let me double check. But it's Peter Davison era. Anyway. Yeah, it'll be a while in here. The title of the episode, City of Death, is a play on words. I'll be in French. <laughs> it's a play on words in English, but it works better in French. Um, obviously, Paris is often referred to the city of love. Mm-hmm. So here's the city of death. In French, and my apologies to anyone who speaks French. I I don't. Um, it's Cité de l'Amour. Okay, City of Love. Whereas City of Death is Cité de l'Amour. So, l'Amour, meaning love, or la mort, or more, wherever you pronounce it, meaning death. Because I'm a pure culture, I always just say mort because of yeah. the T at the end. I don't know if the T is meant to be silent. Yeah. I like what's um, um, <laughs> Both uh, of which obviously conf- sound very similar. <laughs> uh, just to confirm, uh, Arkham Infinity is the first story in Peter Davison's second season. Okay. Working titles of the story include Curse of the Sephiroth, A Gamble with Time, and the time of the Sephiroth. So the David Agnew persona, um, it's a departmental pseudonym. We've seen plenty of those used in the story before. Um, It's used when the production team has to write a script, as opposed to a script writer, or when someone doesn't want to be credited as a script writer. Um, It was originally entitled A Gamble of Time, as I said, and was written by David Fisher. His concept was mainly set in 1928, with the Doctor and Romana aided by a Bulldog Drummond-esque detective called Pug um, on the trail of the Stone of Mona Lisa, pursuing Scarleone from Paris to Monte Carlo, where his partner, Baroness Heidi, is using time travel technology to cheat at roulette at a casino <laughs> to fund the time travel experiment, which I love. Um, the Doctor and Romana ultimately discover that he is trying to journey back to the prehistoric Earth and to prevent the time double experiment prevent the time bubble explosion or to save his fellow Sephiroth who are dying from an illness he believes is caused by radiation from the accident. The Doctor discovers the culprit is actually the common cold to which the Sephiroth has no immunity and Scarlioni agrees that the time bubble accident happen in order to spark the genesis of life on Earth. I think this sort of like it's just a cold thing has been done um, a lot in science fiction before. Yeah, I, I, I think... I want to say War of the Worlds is the first one to do it, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, Graham Williams felt that the whole, like, using time travel, you know, or using, like, it was meant to be the bracelet um, to rig roulette wheels at a casino was putting a bit too much of an emphasis on gambling and was therefore inappropriate for a children's show. Hence, (laughs) it was removed. Um, But Fisher wasn't available to the rewrites himself because he was going through a divorce at the time, so he gave his blessing for the production team to do the edits, and that's where Williams and Douglas Adams essentially rewrote the whole thing um, based off of oh, that. Okay. Um, because of Douglas Adams being part of it, it does sort of have moments of Douglas Adams-esque humour, which we've talked about before in The Pirate Planet. Um, so he reused concepts of this story's plot for Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, particularly the crashed spaceship providing the original impulse leading to the formation of life on Earth. And the fact that Shiv's pilot survives to see the rise of humanity and then works to procure a time machine for himself and undo the whole series of events, eradicating Earth. In the book, though, the pilot was not spliced through time. 
but rather just survives as like a disembodied ghost and so on. So again, Douglas Adams often reuses themes and, and stuff like that in his stories. Mm. So the whole idea of having the doctor write, this is a fake <laughs> <laughs> on the sort of canvas of all of the Mona Lisa's um, was actually inspired by a real person, a famous art forger named Tom Keating, would leave clues in his paintings as to their inauthenticity. So one of these was to write, this is a fake in white lead paint on the canvas before painting over it with standard paint. So the x-rays would show the image when you x-rayed the painting. Um, He was actually put on trial and acquitted in 1977. So not that far before the story was um, written. Hmm. It also seems to take inspiration from a real-life plot to steal the Mona Lisa um, by a Louvre employee named Vincenzo Perugia. Um, While not definitively confirmed, there was a forger um, named Yves Chaudron um, who was thought to have played a role in the plot by creating several fake versions of the painting with the intention of selling them off as genuine to desperate collectors. Again, very similar to what happened in the story. However, you know, unlike the events of the serial, um, this actually occurred in 1911, so way before the story was set. City of Death had the highest average viewing figure of Tom's entire era, with a rating of 14.5 million people, and it also has the all-time highest rating for an individual episode, with one of the episodes having 16.1 million, which sounds really impressive. It is a little bit misleading, however. Because ITV was on strike at the time, so people didn't really have much of a choice. <laughs> there wasn't really much off, like other channel, other choices yeah. on the telly. It was like Doctor Who or the news or something. I imagine. Um, during the broadcast of the story, Marvel Comics UK branch launched Doctor Who Weekly, which continues today as Doctor Who Magazine, but actually originally launched during this story. Also during the broadcast of the story on the 12th of October, between parts two and three, Douglas Adams' novel Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was first published. So what did you think of Lala's costume in this one? Is it just me or does her, the way her hat is positioned make her look like she's got a halo? Kind of, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I think this is the costume that is usually kind of definitively associated with her. It's like that weird... Madeline schoolgirl thing. Mm. So I was a bit disappointed that we weren't going to have her outfit from last week, which was like the mm. women's version of the doctor's mm-hmm. outfit, which I thought was actually really cool last week. Um, yeah. But apparently, the original costume for this one was meant to be a silver catsuit. And Lala was like, no. Uh, and she actually chose the schoolgirl outfit instead, not aware that. Many people have a sort of sexual connection to schoolgirl mm-hmm. outfits. Now, granted, her schoolgirl outfit does go down to her ankles, so you know. Yeah. Um, but according to her, she said, "I thought it'd be fun to wear something that little girls probably hated wearing because it might cheer them up." I didn't bank on the fact I get loads of letters from their father saying, "Cool school uniform." <laughs> I was like, this is where the sexy is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Tom found filming in Paris to be a very different experience to what he was used to. In the UK, when they were filming, there would be crowds of people 
anxious to meet him. It was very much like, you know, the Beatles or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But Doctor Who wasn't being aired in France. And so they were mostly ignored the entire time they were there. <laughs> they wouldn't really pay them any attention. Um, Lala said that she found this serial to be the most challenging that she worked on. Though she was pleased with the final outcome. She said that, you know, we had to film loads of scenes in the rain and the cold. And there was no glamour in it whatsoever. And it was different from the ordinary stories too. And she liked the finished result. Ultimately, mm-hmm. the end of it. Julian Glover didn't particularly want to put on the Jagaroff mask. <laughs> um, he was really reluctant to do so. And so they ended up using a double Richard Sheiky, um in many of the scenes where the mask is used. Julian basically, he felt that it would like, you know, limit his performance and whatever. Um, apparently he did later try it on and kind of was like, oh, actually maybe it wouldn't have been too bad. But ultimately mm. he didn't really wear it. Um, there were plans originally for Julian Glover's wife, Isla Blair, to play the Countess. Obviously that didn't happen, but it would have been interesting. Uh, Tom Chadbon uh, was cast as Duggan, apparently on account of his resemblance to Tintin. Which, <laughs> <laughs> when I was preparing this earlier, I was like, he does kind of look a bit like Tintin. He's like an adult Tintin. Which is adorable, because you're like Tintin was like going around solving crimes and shit. Um, like, like, oh, however, like there's there's one discernible difference between the two of them. Tintin doesn't punch everyone he sees. Tintin isn't a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like I said earlier, Duggan was sort of created yeah. as like a parody of like Bulldog Drummond, like that sort of yeah. idea. Actually, it's really weird you say that because this that isn't the only Tintin reference I'm going to make in my, in this uh, episode. <laughs> Um, K9, the best boy, does not make mm-hmm. an actual appearance in the story. Though the doctor does greet him as he enters the TARDIS and goes to visit Leonardo da Vinci. That just makes it even worse that you don't get to see him, to be honest. Mm. Um, this story also features some cameo appearances. So we have a mm. cameo from Eleanor Braun and John Cleese, which I think I knew. I think I've seen that clip before. Yeah. But I hadn't realized it was this story. Um, they only agreed to appear on the condition that they received no advance publicity or credit in Radio Times. So it was just meant to be a sort of yeah, nice surprise. Easter egg cameo. Um, they attempted to have the performances credited to pseudonyms of Helen Swankesti, uh, of Helen Swinetsky and Kim Bread, respectively. Um, but Radio Times said no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we also have cameos from Douglas Adams and Michael Hayes. Um, Adams is seen as a man having a drink at a bar, while Hayes is the shifty looking man wearing a cloth cap and carrying a metal case who exits the train after the Doctor of Romana. And he additionally provides the voice of the guard who tells the Doctor the Mona Lisa had been stolen. So let's go on to the rest of our cast. So as Duggan, as I've already mentioned, is Tom Chadbon, otherwise known as Tintin. Um, this is the first of two on-screen appearances for Tom. We'll see him again in The Mysterious Planet. He's also done a wide range of audio stories, including playing Will Sullivan, brother of former companion Harry Sullivan, in the Sarah Jane Smith series, which Patty and I have talked about to no end. Did you recognise the voice when you heard him speaking? It sounded familiar, but I didn't place it. Yeah. I did have to wait until I was doing the trivia to see. It was like, I know. I... And now that I, now I can't not hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, 
Tom's non who credits include Casino Royale, Rebecca, Tess, Game of Thrones, where he played High Septon Maynard, the Septon who married um, Jon Snow's parents, and Casualty. Mm. Kerensky is played by David Graham. This is... Hold on. Let's try that again. Kerensky is played by David Graham. This is on-screen appearance number three for David. We previously saw him uh, as the bartender in The Gunfighters. <laughs> Damn you, David. And he also had an uncredited role in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. David has also voiced Daleks in a number of stories. He voiced the Mechanoids and he's been in a number of audio stories. His non-who credits include Thunderbird 6, Supergirl, Stingray and Peppa Pig where he plays Grandpa Pig. Is that our second or third Peppa Pig actor that we've had? I can't remember. At least second I'd say. As Count Scarlione we have Julian Glover as I've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Is the second and final Doctor Who appearance for Julian. We previously discussed Julian in The Crusade, where he played Richard Flyinheart. Mm-hmm. And lastly, as the Countess, we have Catherine Shell. This is the only Doctor Who appearance for Catherine. She was also considered for um, the role of Preston in Warriors of the Deep. Obviously did not go on to play that part. And mm-hmm. her non-Who credits include On Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Return of the Pink Panther, and Space 1999. Uh, in relation to Julian Glover, I found something kind of cool uh, mm. during the week. I don't think we mentioned it in our previous discussion of him. Mm. Uh, his son plays the guy that plays William Russell in an adventure in sp- time and space. I don't think we did mention that. Yeah. He also would do all of the um, uh, latest Ro- big finish first Doctor. Ian Chester and things. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. It's nice when you have like connections like that between between characters. Absolutely. So we're now going to move on to the second half of the podcast, <laughs> uh, which is the character discussion. Uh, so as always, we'll be discussing the Doctor, his companions, who this week are Romana and. Duggan, mm-hmm. uh, we have the prominent character of Korinsky, mm-hmm. and then we have the villains of Scarlioni slash Tancredi slash Scarot, and then Countess Scarlioni. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I like, at one point I was like considering Herman, but I'm like just like now nah, he's just hired muscle. Like there's no fucking. He's hired muscle who loves his job though. Yeah, like he loves what he does. Mm. <laughs> was, every I, I every part of it. <laughs> I, I love the doctor's line. I say, what a wonderful butler. He's so violent. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you were at the socials this week, so you kick us off. What are your thoughts on Le Docteur in this story? So the doctor in this story is very oh. quick. Very sorry. Um, for anyone that's listening that is French, my uh, my apologies for my atrocious pronunciation of the Louvre Museum or anything else French in this episode. The Louvre. Yes. The Louvre. Um, I just order level French. I'm not even going to try. Okay. So, thoughts on the Doctor. The Doctor is very quippy in the story. Perhaps mm. overly quippy. Like It's like every line is a quip. You could tell that this was a Douglas script. Yeah, but it almost got a bit distracting. Like, there was very little real conversation. 
mm. um, which is a little bit distracting um, after a while. Um, I like the fact that he doesn't lose it with Romana over her making the piece that Scarlett only needed. He starts as like, and you gave it to him, but he doesn't like yell at her or scream or like, you know, get odd with her for a prolonged period of time, which I think is nice. Um, you know, we've seen the doctor interact with other people in the past where he would have gotten the hump over it. Do you know? Um, mm. so it's nice that he doesn't do that with her here. Um, he does seem to be getting along quite well with her, um, and this iteration of her, um, which is nice to see. I thought his interactions with all the characters were very good. Um, he seemed to bounce off well off everyone. The one thing I found though, and I don't know if it's because there was so much quippiness in it, is that it seemed a bit flat. Do you know? Like the non quippy moments seemed a bit flat in their delivery. Hmm. And I don't know if it's just because there was so much quippy stuff that everything else just like the level at the beginning is at like a seven. And so everything hmm. else like what would normally be a seven is now like a Yeah. A two or something. Um, yeah, no, I I get I get what you're saying. Yeah. It just seemed to be like almost like just doing the motions, which which is unfortunate because like I said, you know, he had some good interactions with people, he had some good like the scene where he like when they go to the count's house for the first time, that's really good, where like you know, he's like serving everyone drinks and you know, he's defending the chair and stuff. There's a couple of good moments like that, but mm. I don't know, it was just the delivery just seemed a bit off. And I'm not sure yeah. why. Like I would say that that is probably the one negative aspect in this story surrounding the Doctor because like, it, we have a lot of what makes the Doctor really good here, mm. I think. Like, we've got the casual, slightly disarming bravado that he has, like, when he's facing Scarlione and the Countess, you know? Mm. Just, as you say, like, that bit with the chair. Uh, it was a Louis Thames chair. Mm. Like, don't, 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 don't smash it up. Um... So I think there's like a nice bit of time traveling detective work here. I, th- mm. I think the fact that they're able to go back and forth in the time is cool. It's an interesting pack for the story. And the one thing that I did like, and it's very, very subtle. And I wish, I mean, I'm just, I'm not wish, I'm just like, I'm wondering is it, was it done just enough or was it a bit underdone? I liked how well he was selling the Jaggerot as mm. like this thing that cannot be brought back not, yeah. not just for not just for the sake of humanity being born but just the jaggerot are warlike and savage and the universe is safer without them so i, I like the, the selling of that i did too um i would have liked to have there to have there been more in the story to support him yeah. in that you know, it's a lot to put on the doctor as being yeah. like the like I know Romana kind of mentions it a small bit, but like it's a lot to put on yeah. the doctor to be the one explaining that yeah. with no other support. It's not even supporting evidence, but like yeah. See, like all the all you have, the, and I remember thinking about it. I was like going, and I suppose it's actually kind of weird that it's two Douglas Adams stories that I'm mm. kind of comparing is Pirate Planet. And do you remember there was my thing surrounding the the return of the Queen? And I was mm. like, she's back now. And like it's this, she's treated as this big evil entity, but there was no, for me anyway, I didn't feel that there was that necessary build up, but we had different opinions on that. Here, because Scarlione or Scarot is present throughout the entire story, 
he's able to support that with his slight mania and he's also slight not 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 so slight um like his disgust at humanity you know i'm yeah. using you as a i think what i would have liked with it is, is i think the doctor does it really well hmm. but we only meet one yeah so it's kind of hard to buy that the entire species are like that when we only meet one of them I think I almost would have liked at the beginning if we had something a bit more akin to Hand of Fear, where at the beginning of Hand of Fear we get the idea at the start that Eldrad is not good. Yeah, like Do you know? as 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 opposed to being the last survivors of the Jagarot race, they were if you want to do like a Star Trek thing, remain Klingon. They were the last of what they felt was like the pure breed Jagarot or something like that. Yeah, or even just like in that sort of same, say, I suppose the opening just being him bitching about having to use the warp drive. Mm-hmm. You know, have it be that like there was already life on the planet and, you know, you someone, you know, off screen be like, oh, but if we use the warp drive, then, you know, the people on this planet will be destroyed and. Everyone else sort of being like, "Who the fuck cares?" Like, just fucking go. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, sometimes like that, yeah. I think I think that would have supported. Like, Tom does a good job on his own, um, mm-hmm. but I think he needed a little bit of support in the story for it. Yeah, no, like, that's why I was saying. Like, I don't know whether was it done just enough, or which mm-hmm. there maybe was should a small bit more have done there. Um, but at least, like he did his best to to get it across. Like, and like, you are kind of there going, like, fuckish you do want him to go and stop the big bad mm. yeah, yeah. The, the last thing I'll say about the doctor is I quite liked his interactions with Duggan because he's just like will you will you fucking stop hitting people oh wait no yeah. I needed to hit someone yeah <laughs> so like it's not like it's not like he would have been with Harry or with Ian or Jamie or even Ben mm. Um, mm. where he would have been very critical and harsh yeah, about the, or even the way he would be at the brig, do you know? Like there was no harshness behind it. It was just sort of this ever-present bewilderment. Yeah, <laughs> the fact that this guy just wanted to punch everything he sees. And I was like, I'm in the middle of a conversation. What the fuck are you doing? You can't keep doing that to people. Um, we were talking about him earlier off screen, but do you know who he reminds you of? Do you remember the replacements? John Favreau's character. Like the fucking ex cop who's like, you know, just loves to tackle people. <laughs> oh, that was a good movie. Um, oh, it's so good. <laughs> anything else you want to add on the doctor? Mm. No, I think I'll save it for um, later on. Mm. Not, there's nothing about the doctor here, but I think uh, is I think it's just for for my overall for my overall. So now we have the companions of Romana. Mm. not gonna lie still not a massive fan of this version i mentioned that the doctor the certain certain bits of the doctor seemed a bit flat romana seems quite flat as well um mm. her quipping with the doctor while fun to see in some respects doesn't have the same passion that we would have seen with romana one or with leela or with barbara you know with a lot of our our, our favorite companions like the quipping mm. is there, but it. Do you know what it is? It's like 
it's like two people reading Shakespeare who don't understand when to put the right inclination in it. Do you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they're reading the lines and they're delivering them, but there's no passion behind it. It's like when, you know, when we were doing it in school and like every day you, different people would play mm. the characters for like just the interactive readout. Whereas like someone that actually likes Shakespeare gets really into it. And someone that's just doing it for its part of participation just yeah, it would be like someone like you know, doing King Lear, for example, and being like, "An into your room, covered sterility," and da, da, da. Mm. you're reading the lines, and you're yeah, but it's just not mm. sitting well, which kind of bothered me. But um, mm. on the plus side, she's not a damsel in distress, mm. which is good. Um, she seems to get along well with Duggan. Again, there was a little bit of "Will you? What the fuck are you doing?" Like, but not being massively critical. Um, I think. There was a little bit of hoity-toitiness in it, mm. but not too much. It was enough for it to be um, camaraderie rather than entitlement, I think. Mm. Um, and we do get, again, some confirmation of her intelligence. She builds the thing that basically means Scarlet really doesn't need to do his whole plan of seven Mona Lisas, mm-hmm. which... You know, when you spend all this time doing the Mona Lisa plot only to be like, oh, well, Romana can build a thing and then they don't need to do the Mona Lisa plot. It's like, oh, okay then. Random story choice. There's <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole reason that they were doing the Mona Lisa yeah, thing was to get more yeah. money to build more machines. Um, but yeah, so like, I don't know, like this one, like I said, she seemed a bit flat, but given the fact that the doctor felt a bit flat as well, I'm not going to write her off. Do you know? Um, next week is another week. Perfectly willing to be impressed and blown away by her next week. Um, just for me, this week wasn't wasn't it? How about you? So, <clears throat> second story in, and much better participation this time around. Hmm. Like the scene in the cellar, you know, noticing that there's something off about the room, hmm. and then doing her little. I. I'd, I'd love to know what the whole point of coming going in and out with like all this equipment and the box of fucking chemicals because it was like did you need all that shit to knock a, a brick out of the wall mm. you know um, and yeah as you said like showing off the intelligence or capabilities was really good building the machine solving the insolvable Chinese puzzle box that was pretty cool um, but for the rest of it all that was going through my head I'll be honest is I really miss Mary Tam Mm. because I kept imagining what Mary's Romana would be like in these sequences Mm. and it's in my opinion Lala Ward hasn't found the character yet she's as you said it's coming across as someone just reading the lines there's no I'm not getting any soul of the character, mm. and I, like it's a it's a negative thing to say, and fuck it, I know, but I'm just not getting it. I'm just not feel like I'm not feeling it. Yeah. Um, and like I know as well that it's meant to be. It's kind. Of, it, this is the second Gallif- um It's the third Gallifreyan that we have on the ship, but it's the second person to be like regenerating that state on for like a consistent level of time mm. 
and yeah characterization changes with each regeneration we've seen we've seen that we've talked about it you know last week but it really does feel like where when Patrick came on the scene, we knew immediately what Patrick's do- uh, doctor mm. was going to be compared to Bill Hartnell's. Same with John, same with Tom. Lala Ward doesn't know, to me, doesn't really know what her Romana is meant to be. Yeah. And or I, I, does I, it know how to connect her Romana with Mary's Romana? Yeah, because... Like, it, yeah, it, it's we like all, she's we not acknowledging have, they're the same person. Yeah, well, we always talk about the true line from like for the four mm. lads. Like that, there's still that connection of or building upon what has come from the person or, or people before you. Lala's Lala not hitting that for me here, mm. and like you said, like I'm next week. Like I'm not writing her off completely, like because because I want to. I'm curious to see what the full season's going to be like. You know, mm. um. So it's it's just a matter of like we're going to be halfway in next week now. If we're halfway in and there's still that disconnect, I don't know if we're going to be invested in this character anyway. Mm. You know? Yeah. Same. And then there's <laughs> Doug Tin or Tin Gan, whichever you, you want to call him. Uh, my thing was Doug instead of Mortok because he's literally just a fucking Klingon. <laughs> Will you stop hitting things? And trying to knock things over. It's like, but I want to hit him. Okay, can I go hit him now? <laughs> can I go hit him now? He's like a puppy. Duggan is that guy at the fucking RP table that's just like, I want to fight him. I want to fight. It was like, he's trying to, like, no, he's like a priest. He's going to tell us all that. No, no, I don't care. I want to fight him. Um, But it actually made him really likable. Um, You know, because he's just so fucking confused. <laughs> And the only thing he knows how to do is hit people. And, like, I love the way that, like, when they were in the cell, like, the second time, and they're like, Duggan, up you go. And yeah. he's like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, in fairness to him, though, like, I mean, all that aside, like, he is a bit fucking thick. Like, and I don't think it's just that he's thick. He's just very fucking confused. And he's just like, I need basics, people, and you're talking weird fucking shit. Hmm. he's trying to do the right thing. Do you know, he has a job to do and he's trying to do it. And that's all that he keeps coming back to is his job was to stop the theft of the Mona Lisa. He's like, I don't hmm. give a thundering fuck about the rest of this shit. They're plotting to steal the Mona Lisa. Hmm. You're talking about time travel. Okay, you nutter. But they're plotting to steal the phone. At least it's like, I have one job. I'm going to do it. Um, and I do feel bad for him, though, when it's eventually revealed that the Mona Lisa that he recovered is a fake. Hmm. Um, although if you watch the Sarah Jane Adventures episode, the Mona Lisa, um, there's more of the Mona Lisa than we know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Duggan is just like... A Klingon puppy, basically. <laughs> but I like that like, he gets along well with the Doctor and he gets along well with Romana. They they bounce off well off each other, do you know. Um, but yeah, how about you? So, he's like a cross between Leroy Jenkins and 
uh, Thomason and Thompson from Tintin, like those two fucking bungling private eyes. Because again, it's just like he's like, as you say, he's this bumbling, headstrong idiot, which is like, like he's good at being muscle and he's like good at like thumping people. And sometimes it comes up great, you know, when he knocks out Scarleone and they can all escape, or when he knocks out Scarlet to prevent him from doing things. But then it's like. Why does he knock out Kerensky when doctor when the doctor is under no threat from him, and they're discussing the fucking what's going on? Like why? Why does he knock him out? Um, and like there's like you know the fo- there are some funny times there which is like as you said, um, the doctor and Romana are like going we have to get out of here and they both look at him and he's like right let me at this. <laughs> but then there's the scene in like when himself and Romana meet up in the cafe and she's like giving out to him about constantly. Like, breaking glass win- glass doors and then like just to sh- kind of re-emphasize the point of like oh, that's what I do rather than opening up a bottle he just breaks the top of it off on the fucking countertop and like as I said with with the part of like where you know, he's in the, the cellar and they both turned to him I laughed at that with the part with the glass I went I was like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> it, like, there are times where it works and there are times where it's like as you said, like it's the over, like you know, the, the over quippiness with the doctor. Mm. Here, it's like, okay, you're really flogging this fucking joke. Lay off, you know. Um, yeah, I, I was like, oh my god, I have such a love hate relationship with this character. <laughs> I think it's like, like yeah. the cat has like the whole like I fits, I sits type thing. Doug is like, I see someone, I hits. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, so no, <laughs> and it's an in- it's a, an interesting trifecta of heroes we've had so far. This, <laughs> um, like he's not the like by all means he's not the, he's not the worst prominent character no. we've had. Like you know, because there's been fucking way worse out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just just a case of like you. Know, <laughs> it's like what they teach like my daughter in school. It's like when they want her to pay attention. It's like listening ears, which is like Duggan listening ears. <laughs> <laughs> we're punching fists <laughs> <laughs> oh. so we move on to the prominent character section mm-hmm. which is Professor Karinsky I was a bit confused as to why you wanted to include Karinsky but you didn't have what's his face um, Herman Herman um, like because the two of them to me are like you have one person who knows exactly what he's doing and absolutely loves it mm-hmm. in the form of Herman. Um, gets great joy and pleasure out of everything he does. Um, and then you have Kerensky, who's a bit of a stupid genius. Do you know? Like, mm. he's clearly a genius. He invented fucking contained time dilation, essentially. Um, but was under the impression that this man was going to use it to solve world hunger. Mm. And so he's having you do this research in his basement. <laughs> yeah, from a, from a basement in the middle of Paris. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. He keeps you in the basement. And he sells all of his, like, priceless artifacts to fund this research in his basement. With eggs growing into chickens and your claim to fame is going to be you can take a calf and make it a cow 
in about 20 seconds. I was like, cool. Cool. You you do still then need to breed more cows, though. Hmm. Like, <laughs> chickens and eggs is different. <laughs> it's not like you can use the same cow over and over again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think he's a bit of a stupid genius. Hmm. Do you know? Hmm. Um, open your eyes. Love. Also, I find it weird because... I don't know if I was watching it wrong, but like when he finds uh, Scarlioni in the room with all the monies, mm-hmm. and he's sort of you know he's there when Scarlioni wakes up. He's like you know you were talking about this stuff in your sleep, which is fine. But he's like, and your face, but we never see Scarlioni's face affected. Maybe the maybe the flap of the mask is different, or maybe he. But we didn't noticed. see that, so it's just weird. Yeah, yeah. It was a weird like also. If you see some guy's face flapping, run, mm. motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ, the Scooby gang are going to be here in a minute. <laughs> like, just, just go, just go. Um, but yeah, so stupid genius is sort of my mm. ultimate theory. How about you? So I think I wanted to include him, like one, because he brings up an interesting character dynamic, and two, mostly because of this joke. Because given the fact that Julian Glover is in this mm. and what essentially happens to Kerinsky at the end, all that went through my head was he chose poorly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason you put him on the list, isn't it? No, no, it's not. No, as I said, he actually brings up an interesting character dynamic, but that was the <laughs> first thing that came into my head. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> No, he brings up the interesting character dynamic, which is that he is, on the face of things, a purely altruistic scientist mm. who has who's not disgraced in any way, who's not a glory hound, who's not any of the negative connotations we've seen with this sort of rogue scientist we've seen under the employ of the villain that we've seen in many of the other stories. You know, like, um, what's his face? Guy from Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Mm. Who, whose whole thing was that, just to say, I can actually do it. Mm. Whereas here, it's like, no, I can end world hunger like this. You know, it's, and it's, and I think it's because of that, that when he's killed, mm. your heart kind of breaks from a small bit because he just realizes that he's been used. He's been lied to. Mm. And he thought he was doing this noble pursuit and it's just all some fucking mad rich guy's outlandish story of going back in time to, you know, Mm. like it's Scarlet's story, but he just can't wrap his head around it. So it it is a tragic death Mm. (laughs) to me anyway. No, I would agree. Like he totally didn't deserve it, but again... As you say, a stupid genius, because the doctor what points the out, fuck like, you know. What did you think he was doing? <laughs> as the doctor said, like, you know, ask more questions. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, poor bastard. So then we have the villains, mm. which is the Count and Countess Scarleone, or Scarlet. Um, will we do Countess Scarleone first? Because yeah, Scarleone we'll, is the we'll main. We'll work our way up to the big bad. Yeah. Um, so the Countess is a bit of a sort of a stereotypical socialite character that you've seen in like a million movies yeah. and TV shows. Um, you know, doing dangerous things for the thrill of it. 
not caring how her husband gets the priceless things he gifts her so long as he continues to gift her priceless things. Mm-hmm. I will say that, like, even more so than Kerenzi's death, her realization that the doctor wasn't just talking bollocks um, is actually a little bit heartbreaking. Because she, like, she says, like, you've been lying to me for years. She's been mm-hmm. married to this man mm-hmm. for years. And he's been wearing a fake face. Which is kind of creepy. When you think about it. Um, well, t- technically a fake. Well, see, this is actually an interesting thing because I said tendril-covered body as a descriptor. It's mm-hmm. a tendril-covered face because we never see, like when we first see Scout in his natural form, he's in a spacesuit. So we don't know, are they meant, are they, do they actually look like that ancient Egyptian scrolling of which is weird head, normal humanoid mm-hmm. body. I assumed that was what it was meant to be. Like, the green tentacles are his face. Yeah. So, he's been wearing a fake face mm-hmm. for years. Like, if you think about it beyond the context of the episode. She's been sleeping with this man for years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she got nice priceless artifacts out of it and whatever. But, like, to realise that, like... Because the fact that they were married is what makes it fucked up in my head. Mm. Do you know, like, because usually a character like that would be a recluse. Do you know, he would be the single count. Do you know, mm. lots of women passing through, no one ever stays. Mm. You know, because mm-hmm. you don't want people getting too close or whatever. Mm-hmm. He married her. And it's like, wow. Like, that's fucked up. Like, it doesn't excuse anything that she did. Like, she clearly was all for having people killed for doing a bad mm. job. She was all for stealing the Mona Lisa. And again, I think the thrill and the adrenaline of it or whatever, like, sort of rocks her socks, as it were. But I did feel bad for her at the end. Do you know? Yeah, because um, the actress... Uh... Is it Catherine Shell? Yeah. Does a really good job of selling that agonizing betrayed debt. Yeah. Does a really good job of it. Yeah, so like I don't like she didn't like she wasn't a nice person. Mm. But I don't think she deserved what she got. You know, it's not like a case of you're like, oh yeah, fucking karma's a bitch or whatever. Mm. You feel bad for her, like. Mm. Like, yeah, it's I, I remember thinking that I would be very interested to see what she was like prior to meeting mm. Scarlioni. Like, <clears throat> does would she was she this? Is it a nature versus nurture type thing? You know, like mm. did she always have like this like bit of a cruel streak in her, and then just the access to wealth brought it out more, or was it the? influence of being around this uh wealthy man with like so much power over the lives of you know like his henchmen and all this type of stuff and also his daring do nature like did she just get all swept up in it and it's like was along for the ride so well it does beg beg the question who holds the title by birth and who married into it see this is this is the thing that's 
is... But was he using her for the house and the privacy and whatever? Because, like, yeah, because I'm wondering, right, we know that, I think he said, like, there's, like, a dozen, mm. for dozen parts of Scarlet scattered throughout the thing. But, like, Scarlet, when we first see him, is... Uh, he's a matured version of his species he's not mm. like a child so like is he thrown into those time zones as a we'll say like a 40-ish year old mm. looking human and if so like how does he go about setting up his life and all this type of stuff so uh, possibly yeah she possibly was the countess and he mar and he married in mm. because... which again just makes me feel bad for her hmm <laughs> So yeah, like th- th- it's actually yeah that actually kind of raises an even fucking worse point because it's like as a it's like you're inviting the devil in type thing. Mm. Um, yeah, because that was the one, the thing was like that like they're all existing concurrent all these scouts are existing concurrently, so it's not like. Well, no, I would say maybe he potentially has access to wealth because if you think about it, if they're all existing concurrently and the way that time mm. flows within the show, then there's this big, huge fucking maybe nest egg being built up between all of them yeah. that he gets access to, but he doesn't have the title of being a nobility or anything like that. So. Yeah, or is it the fact that, like, he hid all this stuff in this house and he married her because she she had the house? It's, it's because the timelines are concurrent. Yeah. Rather than consecutive. Is Junior. there a novelization? Is there a novelization of this? There is, a, there is yeah. Um, it's not written by any of the any of the lads who wrote the episode, but there is an novelization. Right. Of it, yeah. Okay, I'd be curious to see if there's any bit of an expanded backstory. Because mm. it's the concurrent nature of time in this story is very different. Mm. Like it's not a case of he's very old yeah. and he set up things in his youth that he is now able to access. It's decisions being made concurrently across different time periods. Mm-hmm. So it's like. Did he find her and her house first and then the other selves started hiding stuff in it? Hmm. Or did his other selves find this place and start hiding stuff in it and then tell future self, hey, you need to go to this building and whatever. You know, it, it, it's a bit of a brain uh, melt, I think. I, I think it might be option A because if you think about it, how how many like how does Tancredi know to have to have seven copies of the Mona Lisa or six copies of the Mona Lisa made mm. without knowing what Scarlioni would know about the seven potential buyers? Yeah. So like it's a bit of a it's a bit of a brain melt. Either way, like this woman is being used for her house. She she's being used, yes. In in some capacity she's being mm. used. Um and the death she got she didn't deserve. Mm. But she still did some shitty things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so how about we talk about the man himself? Scarlioni, Scarot, Tancredi. How many masks does he have? Like, does he keep spares in his pocket? Because he keeps tearing the mask by ripping it down the face. All with such perfect hair as well. Yeah, but it's like he rips his mouth and nose. Yeah. Like, you can't reuse that. So does he just keep spares in his pocket? Probably. Also, (laughs) why does he keep taking it off in, like, the sitting room? (laughs) Have a private lair where you take your face off, for fuck's sake. Um, I do think, in fairness, like, 
Julian deserves the best performance of the episode. Oh, like he was fucking... so good at both versions. Um, he was mm. very, very good. The only thing that was missing for me was I wanted to see more. We only see two splinters, and mm. I wanted to see more. Um, yeah, because he plays it so well. Like, again, it makes you hurt for the Countess even more when you see the fact mm. that, like, it's not like he treated her like crap mm. or whatever. He's very smooth, you know, very suave, I, like, very, very she's, she's genuinely in love with him. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of understand why, do you know? Mm. Like, it's not like he hypnotized her or anything, do you know? Um, so I, I kind of would have liked to have seen him in other time periods as well. To see, because like obviously you have him in present day, you know, smooth, sophisticated account, art dealer, da da da. You've him in fifteen oh five or whatever it was, mm-hmm. with like the long hair and like yeah. I I want to see Julian Glover just in other outfits. Because <laughs> <laughs> like we know that he was in ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. we know that he was in Rome, and potentially Greece and potentially Britain. Yeah, so I, I don't know, I would have liked to have, I'll talk about more of my overall, but I would have liked to have had more other versions of him. And also I would have liked to have had, because like, it, it's a bit weird at the beginning because, actually for most of the episodes, it seems like his splintered selves are in conflict with each other. Mm. Um, I like. I would have liked to have seen though, and I don't know if they could have done it on, on the budget that they had, but like, Imagine you've got because th- they did it a little bit with the doctor, with him in the pr- in the present and him in the fifteen oh five. But I would like to have seen like him like looking in a mirror or something and having conversations with four different versions of himself. Yeah, do you know I like that type of bl- <laughs> storytelling? I think would have been fun. I think we can blame John Nathan Turner for that. Yeah, probably. Let's go shoot on Paris. You fucking prick. You just wanted to get pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think like Julian Glover's performance was just phenomenal. Um, oh. And to be honest, he's the one character I think was consistent. The Countess wasn't bad either. She was, actually, she was fairly consistent yeah. as well. Um, but like of our main characters that we've discussed, he was consistently him. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like the Doctor and Romana, like I said, had their flat moments. Duggan. Uh, yeah. Yes, go hit, have fun. Um but the count was you knew his character. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yeah. And you felt his character and Julian played it brilliantly. Mm. How about you? Any other thoughts? Suave as fuck. <laughs> like he is so good at Scarlione. And actually Scarlione feels like a dry run for Donovan from The Last mm. Crusade. Um, and I was just thinking, like, I, I, I don't know if other people have the same. He's such a fucking underrated actor, I think, or like an under, maybe an underappreciated actor. Mm. He is so fucking good in everything I've seen him in. Mm. Game of Thrones. Yeah, he's only in Star Wars for a small bit, but that Darling Buds of May, all these things, he is so fucking good. And and he does a creepy Aragog. Really does a really really creepy Aragog. But like, even if we go back to the Crusade, like he was a large part of I think of why we both liked mm. that story. Um, he was 
great as Richard Lionheart, and he like because the his performance added such gravitas to that it was a fucking fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, here though, as Scarlioni, he is just this Bond villain esque character. Like I love when he's when the, after the Doctor and the others find the copies of the Mona Lisa, he's just there in his silk Chinese style fucking night night robe with a gun and he goes are you going to tell us about the copies no are you going to tell us who you really are no <laughs> he, like, he is he is hands down the as you said the best performance in this story mm. and spoiler a large caution as to why i enjoy this story mm. yeah. he like, he is like, he is a large part of what makes this story engaging he's one of those story based performers i would have loved to have seen take a stab at being the doctor i think he would have been brilliant yeah yeah like, I think it would have been really good. like I, i've often said like that i think bernard k is um my favorite mm. guest star because like, you know he was fantastic julian with two performances is up there with him like mm. julian like is just fucking a hundred percent like he's batting average mm. um and I agree. I would have loved to have seen like a sort of a Council of Scarots type mm. thing. Yeah. Um, because again, the man has such great acting range that he could have very easily pulled off all these things and f- it would have been fucking incredible. Mm. Like you could have, like you could have very easily stretched the story out to a six parter to accommodate all these different things. Yeah. Or I'll get into my overall. There's an alternative that they could have done as well, but I'll get into that <laughs> yeah. in my overall. Not shoot in Paris and have the budget to actually do a bit more. Mm, kind <laughs> um, of. Yeah. The there's two things that kind of confuse me about the story, okay? Mm. Uh, or about no, not about the story, about his plan. One is to do with the nature of time, and one is to do with the nature of the plan itself. So, with the nature of time, it is because we know that Doctor Who's methodology for time travel is mm. here, there, and everywhere, but like. <laughs> We've seen how everything's working concurrently so that the fake Mona Lisa's, when we first see them, theoretically already have this is a fake painted mm. on them. Yes, they do. Or is, it that, or is it that sort of back to the future thing where that this is a fake only appears in them after the Doctor goes mm, back in time? No, they, they already did. Cause we All right. So, te- techn- so like, technically, like, it's one of those, it's like, if Scar- if Scarlet was successful in going back in time, none of this would be happening in the first place, because he would have gone back in time, and humanity wouldn't have existed to necessitate the need of the building of the time machine. No, no, right. It's the difference between concurrency and linear. So, right, okay. The splinter themselves are existing concurrently, yeah. but he's going back to his linear self to stop his linear self from making a choice. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Because like, as soon as I get confused with you know the whole like the fucking the grandfather paradox and there's so many different way mentioned how it's like um in Endgame mm. you know like that's not how time travel works. There's like you know Terminator, time after time, back to the future, <laughs> and all that kind of. Shit. Um. So yeah, okay, cool. That answers that. Secondly, right is I'll really just take my explanation as gospel. <laughs> that's just well, the no, okay. Look, no, to be fair, you're a better scientist than I am. You you grasp a lot of the scientific concepts more than me, you know. Uh, so, 
the what was the the other, oh yeah, the other thing was um if this all the, if all the scarots are working concurrently to bring humanity to help humanity use evolution hmm. to the stage where the technology is available to him like to build a time machine sounding very much like james cameron here you know like hmm. i was waiting for the technology to be built like why does he need karinsky because like or because he's a pilot not an engineer so he knows what level of technology he needs he doesn't know how it all connects together hmm. that that's my read of it it's like he's yeah he's not an engineer he's a pilot so it's like i can tell you the general bits i need for a car hmm. i can't tell you how they fit together and i can't tell you how to you know, do the fuel injection or whatever. I can't, hmm. I, I can't do that. Um, do what? This actually, like, this actually opens like a, like a whole fucking like stream of possibilities and questions because it's like, right, all his cells are scattered throughout various time zones. Hmm. So, like, how does he fix upon the point of time travel? Like, so in order, like, how does he? How does he come across the message of time travel? And it's like, what persona is there? Like, how like how many gaps are there between the the, the personas? Like, is there like, is one in the nineteen? Is in? Is it? Is there anyone between Tancredi and Scarlioni? I don't know. I like my read is Scarlioni is the most advanced yeah. of all of them. So, so it's like. When, it would be kind of cool if that, because I think we mentioned War of the Worlds and you also gave me The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Can you imagine a Scarot variant in the H.G. Wells time thing? And it's like, right, because of the way that humanity is involved in, like in H.G. Wells' imagination, time travel, the concept of going back in time. So then that guy fucking sends the message mm. you know, forward and backwards, all this type of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of expanded media I think you could do with Scarot. Yeah, it's also the downside of them choosing a concurrency with the character yeah. because other than like his whole thing of guiding humanity to have the technology hmm. kind of falls down when we get into the world of concurrency because they already had it. What? So Yeah. It's like this it's like self fulfilling prophecy, not yeah. quite so self fulfilling. There's, there's a little like, bit of yeah. Kyle and Kyle, but my overall thing of it, like with his plan, is that as soon as he realized he was fractured and he was in different time periods, like they're an advanced species. Time travel is not a new concept to them. Mm. So he knew he had to go back in time. But the, mm. uh, the furthest advanced he was did not have the technology to do mm-hmm. it. So he made investments. And pushes and nudges in his other process, so it just kind of shifts it a small to bit. shift things yeah. a little bit, and then presumably yeah. to find someone who was already investigating the possibility and hire him and trap him in the basement um, <laughs> and feed him fancy food to keep him happy um, and the vitamin pill that just <laughs> vitamin- nasty. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that that's yeah. my thing, and, and the whole idea of like why didn't he just do it himself because he's not an engineer. Yeah, Do you know, it's why like the whole plan with the Mona Lisa is because he couldn't build the one piece that he needed. Mm-hmm. 
So they were going to have to do this big, more convoluted way of doing it, as opposed mm-hmm. to him just doing the targeted way that he that would have just moved him by himself. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. So, very interesting character discussion, I thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're probably should send forward our payments to the Julian Grover Appreciation Society. <laughs> um, so now we reach the end and we have the overall section where Trish and I both give our scores on, for the story out of five. Uh, so, Trish, do you want to go first? Will do, will do, will do. So, first of all, I did find the concept for this story very interesting. Hmm. The idea of this, you know, ancient being as in a being from 400 million years ago mm-hmm. being splintered across time working concurrently towards a single goal i found very very interesting the fact they filmed in paris is interesting um but i think they spent too much time showcasing the fact they were in fucking paris like yeah. you were talking like, oh we could have stretched this to a six-parter please fucking don't like just cut out half the random scenes of them in Paris to have more backstory and development of the characters that we have. Mm. Like the chase, like when Duggan is chasing the Doctor and Romana, that goes on forever. When they first get to Paris and they're going sightseeing, that goes on forever. You're like, ooh, they're walking down a road, they're crossing the street. I'm like, we get it. You're in Paris. We get it. Also, a street is was, just a street. Just fucking calm your tits. Like. Or was there was um, trying to hail a taxi. Doesn't anyone yeah. care about history? I was like, ugh. Also, why are you hail a taxi behind the fucking railing, you donkey? What fucking sense does that make? Um, So, like, it was cool that they actually went to Paris proper. But to be honest, other than that one shot from the top of the Eiffel Tower down to the like bottom of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, the grassy bit. Yeah. You could have fucking done that anywhere. You could use fucking stock footage and had the same effect. Um and I think they wasted loads of time that could have been spent on character development. Um there was no canine, so automatic point deduction. Mm. No. Sorry, you've a fucking robot dog that's a fucking genius. And you don't include him in his, in the weird concurrency time travel story. No, sorry. Yeah, uh, I think the only thing is if you had introduced K nine. Uh, oh, when did the Doctor meet Scarlioni? Episode two. Mm. Yeah, so if K nine is there in episode two, he immediately detects an alien presence in the room, and it's yeah. I don't care. I want K nine. Shush. I want K nine. My well. overall. Shush. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like I said, I would have liked to have seen more versions of Scarlioni in different time periods. Like, we only get the one. I would have liked to have seen more of them. Um, and I would have much preferred that to more scenes of fucking them running around Paris. Mm. Um, like I said, the humour didn't really work for me. Um, the quippiness was a bit too quippy. Like, for me, with the exception of Duggan, I don't know why I found Duggan fucking hilarious. Um, <laughs> don't you 
does he remind you of me? <laughs> Maybe a little bit, yeah. Oh. Um, like that could be it. Actually. <laughs> uh, you said it though, I didn't. Um, well, I thought the humor was a. Little, it just didn't work for me. I thought there was too much quip and not enough dialogue. You know, um, and overall, the episode has felt a bit flat. Do you know? Mm. I was kind of expecting like the first story, you know, shot in Paris, the first story shot abroad. I was expecting big and bombastic and you know, whatever. But it just didn't. Like, if you compare it to Andrew the Tara which was also directed by the same person, and with the Tara, even though it was just shot on location, it seemed so much bigger than this one did. Even mm. though it was like within like a five mile radius or something. But but isn't it amazing like what just a, a national park or a wooded area mm. will do for a story? Yeah. And maybe it was basically in a city. Maybe, maybe that's why I just felt weird. Very, confi- very confined. Yeah. Um... Like I said, even with like Julian's amazing, amazing performance, your man who played Doug and I really liked as well. Too, I thought his performance was very good. Um, it, overall, the stories felt really flat. And again, I was thinking about how in our previous episode we were talking about how you know our last story. You thought this was the first story of the season, mm. and. You know, so you were a bit underwhelmed by last week. And I was like, oh, you know, that means this story should be really good. Do you know? Um, you know, the schoolgirl outfit is a bit iconic. The Paris setting is a bit iconic. Even, like, the doctor, like, sort of doing, like, his little hello wave. Yeah. Do you know? Um, there's a lot of iconic moments in it. But they're iconic out of context. Mm. Um, and I didn't really get the iconic story I was expecting in context um so for me and this i don't know what where you're landed on it i originally gave it a 2.5 i think that's a bit excessively harsh so i was going to bump it to a three but I don't feel like giving me a three so <laughs> give me a 2.75 because i think mm-hmm. 2.5 is perhaps a bit overly harsh for a lot of things that are very preferential i think to me but i can't mm. bear to give it a three like I'll never watch this one again. You know, I'll watch the Julian Glover clips online. Yeah. <laughs> but how about you? Um. So no, that that's interesting. All right. Um. Also, um, your first two statements are pretty much a carbon copy of my first two statements. <laughs> the concept of the story is really good. I think the villain scattered through time trying to rejoin himself to achieve his, his goal is very interesting. Um, that's pretty much what I've written down. <laughs> um, like, Julian Glover is such a joy in this story to watch. Mm. Like, he, and like, he, that's this is the thing I was saying for the Doctor. His interaction with the Doctor is brilliant mm. as both Scarlioni and Tancredi <clears throat> it's it's done so well and like I'm actually as you said like a small bit more I'm really really frustrated as to like I would have loved to see the Doctor and Scaroth mm. you know because we don't see enough of that mm. um, because 
like when yeah okay Scarlet reveals himself we're still kind of dealing with Scarleone mm. you know or like I think it's just the suit <laughs> but like, I would love to have seen like the Doctor with like a, a Scarlet rejoined or mm. just something like that you know I think we're missing missing out stuff there um the 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 concepts other than like the, the main concept of the story the character concepts we discussed i i quite enjoyed like mm. Korinsky and the countess their character concepts i really like i love those discussions where we can have that type of thing they may not necessarily have a huge impact on the story but they bring up elements and emotions that we quite enjoy talking mm. about so that's always a good thing that's always going to be a point for me um where it falls down is the slightly inconsistent, <laughs> slightly inconsistent humor, mm. and t- which affects the tone of the story. Um, parts of, as I said, parts of Duggan didn't hit with me. They just, they kind of just for fuck's sake, you know, type mm. thing. Also, like I was trying to figure out what it was about Ramo- uh, Ramo- Romana that I just. Like, I was like, I don't really know what to write about her. And it wasn't until you kind of said it. It's just, it's flat. Mm. There's like this air of, <laughs> it's like that joke in The Simpsons when Pepper Poochie's not on screen, everyone should be asking, where's Poochie? It, here it's like, everyone's kind of going, where's Scarlioni? Mm. Because he's the fucking draw of the story, Julian Glover's performance. And initially I had it at a four, but I was kind of going, I think I'm stacking up an awful lot to Julian's performance and Tom's back and forth with him. Um, So I dropped it to a 3.5. Okay. Because I think I probably, I would watch the story again. I don't see it as being as iconic as people are making it out to be. Mm. And again, I think a small bit of that might be the um, Douglas Adams f- uh, brand attached mm. to it. It's... Again, like there are better stories. lesser. There are better, lesser known stories out there. Mm. And... Yeah, so here it's a 3.5. I wouldn't be rushing out to watch it again anytime soon. As you, as you said, like, I would gladly watch the Julian Glover clips on YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, it's a story I would revisit its entirety at some point. Okay. So for season 17, that puts your average of your first two stories at 2.25 and mine at 1.88. So Oof. not a great start. No. Though for you, it's a big improvement over last time, you know, from a 1.0 to a 3.5. That's a, that's a big leap. Um, <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot riding on next week, which I know nothing about. Um, uh, because, well, like, this is the thing now is that, like, as I've said repeatedly, this new, this era that we're entering in now hmm. is around the time where my enjoyment of the store uh, my enjoyment of the show started to check out a small bit because mm-hmm. i think we had reached the peak of the golden era at the start like at the start of tom and then it started ever so slightly dip with leela and romana not because of them 
but because of the qualities of the stories that were coming out. Hmm. And I think, yeah, this is, I remember that this was the time where I was, I was watching it to get the, you know, unlock achievement, watch every story type thing, Hmm. or at least get to the next doctor to see what happens next. Yeah. So we'll have to see. Mm -hmm. But even though these first two haven't been maybe what we wanted, never know, can easily turn itself around and next week could be a fucking 5.0 for all we know. Absolutely. But we'll have to wait till next Uh, week to see. Mm -hmm. So next week, you can join us when we discuss the creature from the pit. Mm. Mm. Bye. Bye.